Thanks for coming. Uh, this week's shear was dedicated. Hashem, quite some dedications over here. Josette Flicker dedicated the shear in honor of her father's yard site and her mother's yard site. Her father is Elio Ben Yaakov. Her mother is Flora Sara Bas Avram. This is one is on the 18th and one is on the 28th of Ador. Both of them should have a very great aliyah and channel lots of brachas to you, to your family, for all good in the material and in the spiritual, um, and all, all that your heart desires and beyond. I thank you so much. Another dedication on the Shia this week was by uh, Rabbi Velvold Sikman and Paulina Sikman. This is an honor of uh, Velvold's birthday, his birthday, his son Levi's birthday, which is on the 26th and the 24th of Adar. Velvel's is on 26th, his son Levi's on the 24th. May Hashem bench them both with Hashnaz Bracha Natslacha. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful good new year. Mazel Bracha and only, only good. Um, he also wanted to do it in honor of the, the Rebetzin, Chaya Mushka. Allah Shalom, the Rebbe's wife's, Lubavitch uh, Rebbe's wife's uh, birthday, which is, or was today, on the 22nd day of Ador. Um, so, let her merit and her great light uh, shine down upon you, Velvel, and your family. For much bracha mazel and only, only, only good to you and your family and to all of the Jewish people. Uh, sheer dedication was also by Mrs. Schuller, Jennifer Schuller, and this is in honor of Rafua Shalema for her uncle, Leib Ben Etta Riva. May he have a complete and total Rafua. Um, complete and complete refua amongst all the ill of Israel. Uh, speedy and complete recovering, recovery. Um, Rabbi Ram Plotkin uh, uh, participated. Lozecha Nishmas is Bubby. Uh, doesn't, he only knows his Bubby's name was Stisha on the 17th of Adar. Doesn't know anything else. Bubby Stisha. May this be Elias Neshama for her. The CD this week. We have two sponsors on the CD this week. One was by Mati Politico. And this is Le'ili Nishmas, um, his wife's grandmother, Mrs. Politico, whose grandmother passed away just this past Friday. Blume Bazevolf. May this be a big zuchus for the Nishama, to be great merit, to guard, protect, and, and uh, carry the soul to the, where it needs to be. In a, in, a, in a good place, um, and the family shouldn't know any more of any any sorrow, um, and Hashem comfort them. Um, another, and also Le'ilu Nishmas, his mother, Mati's mother, Chava uh, Mariasha Bazber, that was on the 19th of Adar. May your Nishama have a very great aliyah. Le'ilu Nishmas Chaya Bas Aaron, a grandmother on the 8th of Adar. And a very happy, happy birthday to Mati himself, uh, Mordechai ben Mar- Chava Mariasha, 22nd of Ador, which was today. Happy, happy birthday. Much, much bracha, mazel. And only, only, only good to you and to your whole mishpacha. Only, everybody should be dedicating the classes and the CDs only for good, 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 happy occasions. Uh, l- last but not least, the Smolyansky family also dedicated this week's CD. And this is in honor of birthdays in the family. 
Three of their children, Esti, Mimi, and Naomi, all have their birthdays uh, sometime uh, in Adar. And I think one was even today. I think Mimi was today. May Hashem give them a shnas bracha and hatzlacha. Wonderful, wonderful good year. And lots of nachas. To, um, and they should grow up in a, in a way that should bring pride to all of Am Yisrael. Um, also, Lozecha Nishmas, a grandmother, Esther Bas Naftali. May her neshama have the greatest, greatest, greatest aliyah. Channel lots of brachas down for the whole family. Thanks for all those that donated. I know it's also a dear friend of mine, uh, Rabbi Mansuri's birthday, uh, and I wanted to be in the schus of him as well. He always helps us out. The Mansuri family, may this be a schus for him as well, for Rishnas Bracha Natslacha, much mazel, much good, and only, only wonderful things. Okay, um, now it's got to be a really good cheer after such good sponsors. So let's hope. I'm a little tired and a little, I don't know, I think a little bit under the allergy. Um, but the Ebeshter will help. Okay. The Parsha, Parsha's, this week is very special. Shabbos is going to be uh, Shabbos Mavorchim, the month of Nisan. We're blessing the month of Nisan. Chodesh is the month of redemption, the month of Giyula. It's also Parsha's HaChodesh. We're going to take out the Torah, an extra Sefer Torah, and read an extra reading of preparing us for the new month of Nisan. So Shabbos Mavorchim, Shabbos HaChodesh, and also... Shabbos Chazak, because we are going to complete the book of Shemos. And we're all going to cry out, Chazak, Chazak, Venis Chazak, let us strengthen ourselves, Venis Chazak, let us be strong. This is a Shabbos of strength, of renewal, of birth, of redemption. I mean, this Shabbos has got everything in it. Really, 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 really powerful. Um, so we, I want to like to focus on today's class on the very, very conclusion of the book of Shemos. In addition to everything I mentioned, it's also a double portion this week. So we have extra strength from two parshios of Chumash, parshas Vayakel and Pekudei, which go together almost all the years. But it happens that they don't go together. Uh, this year they do go together. So we're going to focus on the last psukim, the very, very end of parshas Pekudei. So we know that the last couple of Torah portions in the whole second half of Sefer Shemos was focusing on the building of the tabernacle, building of the Mishkan, building on the home for Hashem. And we see how important, vital, and exciting this is to God, that He repeats the entire project twice in the Torah, down to the most minute detail. And we don't find such elaboration ever. There isn't any subject in the Torah that gets so much attention like the building of the Mishkan. It, there is such amazing Eliezer story with the Shidduch of Yitzhak and Rivka, pretty, much, pretty high up there, but not, it's not, there's not so many partials. It's just it's a small story that's doubled. But over here, the whole thing is doubled with such detail and detail of detail. It's really amazing. And that shows you the importance and how this is like all of Torah and mitzvahs, all of, the, all of Judaism, and everything is all about making a home for God. That's what it's all about. And that's what we created. So in the end of Parshas Pekudei, we finally, finally get it done. In Truma Tetzava, we are commanded to do it. In, the, in those two parshios. Truma, we are commanded to do the Mishkan, all the vessels for the Mishkan, the actual infrastructure of the tabernacle itself. In Tetzava, we have the priestly garments, the Big Day Kahuna, and some other parts. In Kisisa, we, we also have one or two vessels, oil and stuff. And we choose the builders, God choose, chose, chooses Bitzalel as the 
as the one who's going to build the Mishkan. Now in Parshas Vayakal Pekudei, it says how Moshe relates these commandments to the Jewish people, and how the Jewish people um, were electrified with excitement to do this, and how they ran, and it was the most unbelievable fundraiser, that the people had to, Moshe had to stop the Jewish people and tell them, enough, 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 you're bringing too much. We can't accept any more gifts. And then after that, they begin the work. They did it a phenomenal job. They did it so quickly. They started after Sukkot, they were done by Hanukkah. So what do we have? Like two, three months. Less, two and a half months. They managed to get this incredible job done. There was such, it required such craftsmanship. And the Jewish people, they were all different types. And yet they got it done in two and a half months. They didn't erect it till Nisan, but on Hanukkah, it was already completed. So it's half of Tishrei, and the whole of Cheshvan, and it's about less than three months. It's really, really, really amazing. Um, and the Torah relates all the way to the end of the parsha how they brought the whole Mishkan to Moshe, and God instructed Moshe on the first day of the month of Nisan, almost a year after they went out of Egypt, they should put up the Mishkan, let it stand. They put it up and took it down for seven days before, beginning the 23rd of Adar, tonight. Hey, see, I didn't even think about it. Tonight, it's good we're talking about it. Tonight, on the 23rd of Adar, is when they began putting, today starts Shivas Yemei Amaluyim. They would put up the Mishkan, and every day disassemble it. Put it up and disassemble it. And there was a special program of a special service that was done in order to inaugurate the Mishkan, not by Aaron, because Aaron couldn't do it yet. He wasn't Kohen yet. And his sons weren't really the Kohen. Moshe Rabbeinu officiated these seven days, beginning today, until Rosh Chodesh Nisan. Rosh Chodesh Nisan was the final, the day, but see, those seven days, God did not rest in the Mishkan. It was kind of practice. It wasn't the real thing. But in Rosh Chodesh Nisan, finally, boom, God comes down to dwell in the Mishkan that they built. Now, um, the end of Pasha's Pekude talks about how stunning it was. The Pasik describes, I'm going to read reading, Vayachas, this is by Maftir, the very, very end. Perek, Mem, Pasik Lamedalet. Vayachas, Ha'onon, Es Oyel, Moed. It says in the Pasik before this, it says, they put up the chatzer, they put up the courtyard, the fence around it. And Vayachal Moshe, Samalacha, and Moshe completed the work. And then Vayachas, Ha'onon, Es Oyel, Moed, the cloud of God, covered the tent of meeting. Ukvoid Hashem, and the glory of God, Moleyas HaMishkan, filled the Mishkan. The Mishkan was filled with God's presence. Then it says, Moshe couldn't come into the Oval Moed. Because the cloud was on it. And the glory of God filled the Mishkan. And it was so powerful and so strong that even Moshe, who is the greatest human being, who has the greatest spiritual capacity more than anybody else, could not walk into the Mishkan because he would, so to speak, get electrocuted from the intense presence of of God being over there. Okay. Then the Pasuk concludes suddenly, this is almost the end. And then the Pasuk says like this, When the cloud would leave the Mishkan, Yisu B'nai Yisrael, the Jewish people would travel, in all their journeys. When? When the cloud would leave the Mishkan. But if the cloud would not rise, if the cloud would not rise, that was a sign, because remember, this was a mobile home. 
So they, they traveled from place to place. They disassembled it and assembled it. Disassembled, assembled. How they know when to move on from place to place? When God would leave, we would follow. How do we know when God is leaving? When the cloud would depart, we know that Hashem is moving to another place and we follow the leader, we followed Hashem in the desert. So the Pasuk is saying, as long as the cloud did not leave, the Jewish people stayed and put. When the cloud would go, they would follow. Then it says, in the last Pasuk, because the cloud of God is on the Mishkan by day and by night. I'm sorry, by day and by night there was a fire. A fiery pillar, a fire. And this was to the Le'enei Kobes Yisrael in front of the eyes of the Jewish people. B'chol and all their journeys. So Parshas Pekudei concludes with the Jewish people journeying in the desert. Which is really strange. Because we're working up a climax over here. We're working up to the epitome. What's the epitome? That God came down to dwell on the Mishkan. So why suddenly, right when we finally get to the, to the, that Hashem is residing in the Mishkan, are we suddenly speaking about a technical aspect that what would happen when they would travel? When they would travel, the cloud would leave and they would follow. Isn't the, all these parshias we were reading till now all about the construction of the Mishkan, the building of the Mishkan, and we finally did it and Hashem, the impossible happened. God that cannot be hosted or facilitated, as King Solomon says, in the heavens and the heavens above can't be a container for you. Yet our small little, our small little trailer that we made over here is where God Almighty will reside. That's awesome. That should have been the end. Why suddenly do we discuss over here the three psukim talking about the travels of the Jewish people and what, when the, what would happen with the clouds? Very interesting. Especially since the Torah does devote an entire paragraph, a portion, in the book of Bamidbar, in Parshas Bahaloscha, later, we're going to read it around Shavuot's time, where over there the Pasuk describes the Seder Hamasais, the order of when Jews, when they traveled in the Midbar. So these psukim belong over there in the parsha of the Masa. Over there exactly describes how they, when they would see the cloud moving, they would blow with trumpets, they would gather up, which tribes went first, the Levites, the, the, the Levim, assembling, disassembling, the whole process. It's all described in Baal Oscha. It doesn't belong over here. Why would the Torah over here in the end of Parshas Pekudei relate to us a story about the travels of the Jewish people through the Midbar, even though it's related to the Mishkan, it's not the main point of the Mishkan. The main point of the Mishkan it's not, is not when it's disassembled. The main point of the Mishkan is when it's assembled and God is dwelling over there. Kind of strange. Now the Sephornu, um, bothered by this question, he emphasizes, Sephornu is one of the early commentators, he's bothered, you see, by this question, and his answer is, that Ubaha and Pasuk Lamed Vav, why does the Pasuk say Ubahalasa Alain? For he is to teach you. No, the Pasuk is not here to tell you about the journeys. The Pasuk is here to telling you about how permanent was this residence. And it wants to say that it wasn't once it happened to be, if we were lucky on a good day, we would wake up in the morning and we would see God is in the Mishkan. At times he's there, at times he's not there. The Pasuk wants to say that God was there 24-7. He never abandoned. This is the place where He was. Unless it was time to travel. If not for traveling, if we were not moving to a different place, Hashem would not budge from that home. 
And that's why the Pasuk is telling you about the travels of the Jewish people is not to teach you about the travels, it's to teach you that besides the traveling, any other time, the cloud was a permanent fixture. It was there all the time, it never left. And that's a Chiddush to teach you how much Hashem sees this tiny mishkan, the project of, of tiny human beings, how much God appreciates that, not only that, makes that his residence. That's the Sephora. Look at it. It was so keva, it was so permanent in the Mishkan. It would not leave until the Jewish people needed to travel. And he says, we never had that repeat itself. In Shiloh, it wasn't that way. Shiloh, it looks like God's presence was there, not there, wasn't there all the time. Not even in the first base of Mikdash, not even the second base of Mikdash. It's interesting. What does it mean that God wasn't always there? Maybe the visible presence of Hashem, you didn't see there all the time. However, he says, In the third base of Mikdash that we're going to see Be'ezra Hashem, any, any, any moment, then it says, I am going to be a Chomas Eish. A fiery wall, saviv around, and I will always be there. Okay. So we had it in the Mishkan, and we will even have it to a greater degree in the third base of English. That is the Sephora. However, the problem with this is it's hard to learn that the Psukim, which are talking about journeying, are not about the journey, but rather about all the other times besides the journey. That's not the feeling you get when you read the Pesukim. If you're reading the Pesukim, it seems like the Torah is talking about the journey for the sake of the journey, not the just as a parenthetical emphasis that from the fact that he didn't, that only when they journeyed God left, then it would be in parentheses. It's not. It seems to be that the Torah is telling you a story about the journey, especially according to the Medrash. There's a Medrash, Lekach Tov, which refers to these three psukim, it, the Medrash calls it Sipur um, Hamasa'os, the story of the travels. If the Medrash defines it as the story of the travels, it seems to imply that it is a story of traveling, not an emphasis on how strong God is in the Mishkan, that he only leaves when they travel. So that needs some clarification. So in order to understand that, we need to get a little bit deeper understanding. Oh, now to make the question even stronger. To emphasize this even more. Not only does it seem that these last two or three psukim don't belong here, they're actually a serious interruption in the flow of the narration. Because the next pasuk, after Pekude, we begin a new sefer in the Torah called Sefer Vayikra, the book of Leviticus. Now the, the Sefer Vayikra opens up with the words Vayikra el Moshe He called Moshe So simply It's a new chapter It's a new thing It's going to talk about Hashem told, telling Moshe All about the sacrifices And all the mitzvahs And all that Which is in the book of Vayikra However The Medrash Tanchuma And the Zohar And Medrash Tanchuma In two places And the Zohar All say That Vayikra is not just It's not a new subject It's actually a continuation the words Vayikra al Moshe, he called to Moshe, is actually a continuation 
to what was stated in Pashas Pekudeh. In Pashas Pekudeh it said that God's presence was so strong in the Mishkan that Moshe couldn't enter. Moshe couldn't go in. Because Hashem's powerful light and powerful cloud was so strong that Moshe was terrified to go in. He couldn't go in. So because Moshe couldn't go in, so that's why we begin the book of Ayikra, Ayikra, Moshe, God calls Moshe, and he says, come on, he invites him in. Because without the invitation, Moshe couldn't go in, it was too strong. Right? So, comes out that Vayikra is a continuation of the narration of Moshe Rabbeinu's, of the, of the dwelling of Hashem on the Mishkan, not when they traveled, during the time that it was standing in whichever place it was standing. The Vayikra Moshe. Comes out that these, these three psukim, two or three psukim, dealing with the journey of the Jewish people away and how, what was, what was going on when they journeyed is an interruption of the story. So why would the Torah put in, interrupt the story? So again, it's not just out of place, it makes it even more problematic when it's actually interrupting and therefore confusing the reader. Why do you have that? And as we said earlier, there is a place to talk about this. Wait till Pasha's Baloyscha and throw it in over there. It doesn't seem to belong over here. So to understand all of this, let's get a deeper understanding into the book of Shemos. Because after all, we are concluding the book of Shemos. So the book of Shemos in order to appreciate what's the essence, what's really the book of Shemos all about. We always know that to know something, we, can, we, have to, we have to look for certain clues. And one of the clues, as we spoke many times, is the name. The name set tells you a lot about the essence of something. But another very important clue to appreciate and understand the essential character of any, of any entity or anything is to look at the beginning and the end of that, the subject. You look at the beginning and the end. In the beginning, usually, you have a strong emphasis of what it's all about. See, once you get involved in a project, you can get carried away into details and sub-details, and sometimes these details and sub-details don't even appear to be related to the essence of the project. But the first initial beginning, that's when you're very, very focused on the point. The same is also at the conclusion of something. You reach the final conclusion. Then you can really see what it's all about. So we have to really look at the beginning of the book of Shemos and at the end of the book of Shemos to see what the book of Shemos is all about. And more than that, we know the rule that the beginning and the, and the end are actually etched one in the other. As, this, as there is a statement that says, I think in, in the book of Yetzir, in, in Sefer Yetzirah, I think that's where it comes from, the famous book attributed to Avram Avinu, it says, he wedged the beginning in the end and the end in the beginning. That means that there's always a connection between the beginning of something and the end and the end to the beginning. So let's understand, what do we have? Where do we see a similarity first? In the beginning of Shemos and in the end of Shemos. So the first thing is right there in the open. Both of them speak about some kind of counting. The beginning of Parsha Shemos begins with Ve'ele Shemos B'nei Yisrael. And these are the names of the Jewish people. And it goes on to list the names of the 12 tribes that came down to Egypt. Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda. That's the beginning of the book. So it's doing an actual count on how many Jews there are. Counting Jews is the beginning of the book of Shemos. Interesting, the book of Numbers, Sefer Bamidbar also begins with counting Jews. That's why it's actually called Pikudim, the book of, book of counting. But Shemos is that way. 
In the beginning of Seisha Shemos, it says Ve'ele Shemos, Rashi says it comes to teach you God's love for the Jewish people. Even though he counted them already, the 70 souls that came down to Egypt were already counted in the end of Sefer Bereshus, in the end of Genesis. Over there already we have a counting of the Jewish people. Yet because God loves the Jewish people so much, he recounts them again. We're in the beginning of Shemos. So again, the beginning of Shemos is counting. Now let's go to the last parsha, the last parsha in Sefer Shemos, also counting. What does the word pikude mean? This is the accounting that Moshe Rabbeinu gave the Jewish people for all their donations. The bookkeeping. Parsha's pikude comes to actually look, it does, it, it does the plus and the minuses, it actually counts how much money came in, how much money they spent, where the money went, and it goes to describe the various different um, weights and stuff of the things, so we know how much gold and silver went into all the things. So here you have counting Jews, and over here you have counting the, the, um, the um, what's it called again, the, the, the kalim, the vessels of the Mishkan, and the donations that came into the Mishkan. But the similarity, but both of them is counting. Now we have to stop for a moment and say, comes out according to that, that the essence of the book of Shemos has, is about counting, which is a little strange. Because if you, if you read the entire book and you try to get like, so what's your feeling about this entire Sefer? What, what, is, what, what is the theme of the book? The theme of the book is, in the words of Nachmanides, this is the book of the redemption. This book is called Sefer Hagaula. It's the book of the redemption. We the Jewish people were redeemed. And you might argue and say, well, that's only the first few partials. Shemos ve'era bo b'shalach. They're talking about the exodus. After that, it's no more exodus. No, because we know the ultimate enslavement is to be enslaved to oneself. And the way you free yourself from your evil inclination is to receive the Torah. So we understand that the giving of the Torah would span the next two parashios, Yisro and Mishpatim, is all part of being liberated. And the real, 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 real liberation is connecting to God. And, and of complete and complete unification. We're liberated from the shackles of our, fi- of our finite, of our finitude. And unified with the infinite. Where, do we, where, where does that happen? When we live with God in one house. When Hashem comes to live with us in a Mishkan. So we can really look at the entire book of Shemos and say, what is it all about? It's redemption. Sefer Hagaula. And when we think of redemption in the true sense of the word, it doesn't only mean to be redeemed from an oppressor. Redemption really means to be redeemed from any constriction and from any limitation. If Redemption means to be redeemed from constrictions and limitations. It wouldn't exactly seem like the right expression of that is counting. Because counting very much expresses an idea that something is limited. There is, it could be counted. Limited amount, this is how much it is. Also the pekude in the end deals with the measurements and the limitations. Only so much gold coins or so much gold was there and this is how much went into this vessel. This is how much went into that vessel. When you feel redemption, you're expecting a party, explosive energy, fireworks, jumping, people going mad, people are wild, everybody goes out of their mind. You're not expecting to enter an accountant's office and to discuss exactly where the money went over here or went over there. It doesn't have the flavor, no, doesn't it? It doesn't have the flavor of, of, of the infinite, of the ancient self, of Giula. The whole idea of counting emphasizes limitation. 
Now to take that further. So, so again, the, it, it, do you see the, the we, we can all feel and sense the, the dichotomy in the book of Shemos. On the one hand is the book of redemption, the book of breaking free from all shackles and constraint, coming from the finite into the infinite. And yet both at the beginning and the end, we emphasize a fixed number, a fixed limited space with parameters and definitions and only so much. Now let's take a look at how that dichotomy expresses itself not only in the book in general, but in each one of these um, parshios, parsha shamos and parshas pekude, both have the dichotomy within themselves, with, within themselves themselves, within themselves themselves. Okay, within themselves, they, bo- they, they both contain this dichotomy. Because in Shemoz, we start with, these are the names of the Jewish people. How many do we list? We list 12 people. Okay, so 12 is not a lot, a very fixed number. Then maybe you can say the next Psukim, it does mention, there were 70 people in the tribe when they came down. So 70, very limited number. Okay, so that's the emphasis on the limitation. But in the very next Pasuk, after it talks about the 70 people who came down to Egypt, the next Pasuk says, if you're familiar with the Pasuk, Ubnei Yisrael and the Jewish people, Paru, they multiplied, Vayishritzu, and they swarmed, Bimaod, Maod, very, very much. So hold it. Do you sense that tension? First you began with, and you call this, you call the name of the parsha, we name it Shemos, names, which means I can give you a list. Take a look who's on the list. A moment later, you're telling me, oh, you're ready. you take the list, you throw it in the garbage, say, there's no way I can count. These people are having six babies at a time. It's unbelievable. This population is exploding. Who has any lists? Names? How in the world are we going to figure out what everybody's name is? You, you sense that? Right in the beginning, you have you give me a list of names. 12, 70, containable. A moment later, there's no, there's no number. It's the, they're exploding. So you sense that. The same is also in the end, Pasha's Pekude. We're beginning very calmly describing exactly how much gold went into the menorah, and how much went into this, and how much went into that. Yeah, take it easy. Relax. Go to the end of the Pasha. Suddenly we have a cloud of God. That's covering the mission. We're talking about the cloud of God. Who's God? The Ain Sof. Infinite, endless, boundless. Who's the highest container? Who is the highest container? Well, we know an inanimate. What's the capacity of an inanimate object? A, a, a vegetable, a plant, an animal, a little more capacity. A human, fine. Humans have more capacity than anybody else. An intelligent human. Jewish people, we know we have special souls. We have a very, very, very high, great capacity for energy and, power and, and light. Great. But amongst the Jewish people, who have the real greatest capacity? The tzaddikim. The super mega souls. The tzaddikim. Amongst the tzaddikim, who have the greatest capacity for God? The prophets. And amongst the prophets, who is the prophet of all prophets? Moshe Rabbeinu, he's called the chosen of all human beings. And what does the Torah say, the end of the parsha, that even Moshe could not walk into the tent because it was so explosive. So here you see the dichotomy in Parsha's Pekude, same dichotomy. You start off with a very fixed space, certain amount, very limited. This is how much money there is, you're counting, and the time you get to the end of the parsha, we're exploding. 
And you have that in the beginning of Shemos also. So something is strange in all of this, and the answer is obvious. Redemption is not breaking out of the limitations and the boundaries and jumping into the infinite, and there's no more boundaries and limitations to define who we are or what we are. That's not the, the point over here, is to break out. That's, that's not it. Into this euphoria, this great spiritual light. The point over here is the bridging. That's the point. The bridging of the finite and the infinite. It's the bridging of God with the world. It's unifying. It's bringing heaven and earth together. It's bringing the boundless into the boundaries. And that's the ultimate. That's not, okay, it's just in order not to destroy us so that we can be there too, we need to have boundaries. It's much deeper than that. You haven't experienced the true, true, true boundlessness of the essence of boundlessness, which is God. You haven't really, unless that boundlessness expresses itself with within finite containers, within limitations. Why? Because the infinite itself is just that, an expression of the infinite. It's not true infinite because the infinite itself has a limitation. What's the limitation of the infinite? The limitation of the infinite is that it's not containable in a container. The very fact that it cannot be contained in a container, is, if someone has infinite wisdom and infinite, and, and he can't have a conversation with anybody, it must be very fr- frustrating for that infinite being because no one gets him. You realize, so sometimes too much is also a problem. The fact that he's not containable, God, his light, that too is a limitation. God transcends the finite, of course. He doesn't have any definition and boundary and any kind of even subtle, subtle, subtle. Even though all boundaries and all definitions, everything, all definitions, all emanate from Him, we can't even call Him a source for all of that because He's not, He's, he's totally beyond, beyond, beyond. Fine. But He's not just beyond. He transcends being beyond as well. And the essence of God... His true omnipotence, his true what we call kol yachol, that God is omnipotent, can do anything or be anything, is expressed in this that there is no limitations at all, and that even that which is li- even his boundlessness and his infinite light could be contained in a vessel. How? Not because. It's containable, but because God has no boundaries, and therefore even, he, he's not defined even in being infinite. So the ultimate, ultimate truth of Hashem expresses itself when we can attach the infinite to our finite existence and converge and merge them together. Capture the infinite in the finite. So here's an amazing prophecy that says about the Jewish people an amazing thing. It speaks about the Jewish people in the future. It says the number of the Jewish people will be, mispar b'nei Yisrael, the number of the Jewish people will be, what's the number? Asher it can't be counted. made and it can't be measured. But hold it, then it doesn't have a number. No, 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 it will be. There is a number. The number will be that which is beyond number. So then how is that a number? Well, that's the absurdness of it. The finite will contain the infinite. And we will both be numbered and non-numbered. We will have a number to our non-numberedness. Doesn't make any sense? No. It's like saying two plus two equals five. It's ridiculous. It contradicts the very, very fabric of, of, of the brain, of the mind. But yet, that's, that's what it is. That's the ultimate expression of the, of the Abish there. 
And therefore, both in the beginning of Sefer Shemos and at the end of Sefer Shemos, you have that conversions. You have numbers, Shemos, 12, yet they have no number. In the end, you have a Mishkan with an Ein Sof light, with an Ein Sof to Moshe can't walk in. Yet where is that light? See, even though Moshe can't walk in, where did that infinite boundless energy of God happen? Where, where was it? In a very measured Mishkan, which was very defined. It was a small little area in space which contained the spacelessness of the angels. It's that convergence. It doesn't make any sense, but that's what it's about. Now, we'll see something really, really, really... Now, the real reason for this is because we have to get back to the crux of, of really, really, really why everything all started. What's at the very, very germ of the universe? When I say germ, I'm looking for what germinated all of existence in the heart and in the soul, so to speak, of our Creator. What sparked it all? What's the motivation? So there's all kinds of reasons given, but Hasidus reaches to the heart of the heart of it. And the Alter Rebbe, Rabshner Zalman of Liadi, in his book of Tanya, which is so revolutionary, so powerful, gets to the very, very root of that desire in God to create, and he builds it on a medrash. It says so in a medrash, but as I mentioned many times, the midrash, even though it was stated this way, 2000, whatever, I don't know the midrash exactly when it was made, 18, 19, 2000 years ago, no one paid, it, paid attention to this midrash until the, the altar. I mean, I'm not saying no one. It was mentioned briefly here and there, but no one made a to-do of it. No one centered their Yiddishkeit around it until the Tanya came and built his entire philosophy. And really the Baal Shem Tov, but the Tanya is just elaborating on the Baal Shem Tov. On what? That God desires to have a dwelling place in the low. Nesava HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God wants to have a dwelling place. God wants to move into the low. So he wants there should be a low place. Now let's define low. What is low? Low means the most ungodly possible. Now what is the most ungodly? That which is super defined. That which is super limited. That which is super, has super limitations. The thing about God is, He's the all-powerful. He's the all-this. He's the all-that. He has no limitation. He has no boundaries. So what's the total opposite of him? That which is the most limited, most confined, most constricted. Right? And what does God want? He should have a home in the low of the low. Oh, so right over here you have already the bridging of these two elements. On the one hand you have the low of the low. And when we say a home, we discuss this in different classes. It's a very, very important idea. What does a home mean? What's the definition? God says, I want to have a home. A home is a place where you are as you are without putting up any type of show. See, we as humans, the moment that we, the whole idea of, the, when we, the moment that we leave our home, we begin a, to project a certain image of ourselves that's not really who we are at our very, very being. We begin to pretend. We begin to masquerade. We walk out of the house, we discuss this. As soon as we walk out of the house, you're already not yourself. You're filtering. You're adapting. You're adjusting. You're picking up a certain mannerism that's fitting the environment. On the bus, you're a passenger. In the office, you're an employer, an employee. 
you're this, you're that, you're a teacher, you're a student, you're this. You behave in accordance to what is fitting, what is right. If you have athlete's foot and you're on the bus, you're not going to take off your socks and start itching your toes in publicly because you just don't do that on a bus. In your bedroom, you can do that. Right? You, that's the way you behave. If you have this incredible music that you love and you're listening to it on your headphones and your favorite song comes on and you usually you just want to jump and dance and whatever, you're not going to get up on the bus or on the train and start doing this. Right? Why? Because I mean, if you're a normal person, because this is not the way you behave in this environment. And you'll leave for lunch. Now you're a patron, you're a customer in the restaurant. Now Whatever it is, your entire day you are projecting, you are pretending, you're not yourself. What's the beauty? Why does it feel so delicious to come home? And why even when we travel, it's nice, but it's not like being home. We all have a certain, like, just can't, it's so crazy. We're, we're, such, we're such neurotic people. Because we love running around the world, and when we go away, we say, I can't wait to be home. <laughs> why? Why? Because when you come home, there's like the moment you walk through the front door, like, now I am me, just like the way I am. Now imagine God having that problem. He can never be himself because the moment he is himself, everything explodes. Nothing can handle him. So he has to constrict himself. To angels, he constricts himself. He limits himself. To every world, to every place, he can't be himself. In our world, that's what God wants. He wanted a home in the physical. A place where he can be as he is. A place that will facilitate him as he is. Wait, hold it. He doesn't have any limitations, boundaries, definitions. The, the low, the tachtonim, the low that we're talking about, is that's the whole definition of what makes it a low being, is it's the most restricted, the most confined, the most limited. Well, that's the absurdity of, of the whole idea of creation. That's why the creation is absurd. And that's why there is no explanation. The, 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 the Hasidic masters, the, the, the words the Medrish uses is a word, an interesting word, they use, Nisava HaKadosh Baruch God had a desire. And a desire means, and a, and a desire... I'm sorry for using the term, and let's I don't mean it. I just want you to understand the concept. A desire in its purest form means mishagas. That's the definition of desire in its purest form. Mishagas means I can't explain it intellectually. There is no reason. Ah, that's what it is. Does God, does God need it? Is he giving him something? No, he doesn't need it. But but that's all he wants. He wants a dwelling place in the low. But you realize there are two things that have to come together for this to happen. The low. And the Ein Sof. Well, that's what we're talking about over here. That's the whole secret of the, of the Sefer Shemos. That's the ultimate redemption of Israel. Is that we come into a fusion with God Himself while we are small and He's infinitely big and yet we get married. To go a little deeper into this concept, let's go a little deeper into it. And that is, here's a big novelty, a big chidosh in this particular talk that I'm giving tonight, in the entire idea, even though we spoke about this so many times, how God wants to have a dwelling place in the low, what we sometimes can make a mistake and think that the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate desire is to live in a stone, to live in the wood, to live in the physical materials of this world, to express himself in the lowest. That's not exactly it. There is something deeper. In that dwelling that God wants a dwelling, the Hasidic masters say, that in that dwelling, that God wants to have a dwelling place in the, in, in the lowest of the world, in the lowest element, there is the soul of it and there is the body of it. There is the external element of that desire and the internal element of the desire. The true inner, 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 inner will that God really desires more than anything else is to live inside us.
to live inside the Jewish neshama. It's not so much about living in a brick building or a building of uh, stones. Va'asuli migdash, make for me a base on migdash. Vishachanti, and I will dwell. Bitocham, and I will dwell in them. It doesn't say, make me a base on migdash, and I will dwell in it. I will dwell in them. Hashem wants to live inside our souls. Why? Why inside our souls? More than living inside the concrete physical world. Aren't we emphasizing the whole time God wants a low thing? That's the whole point. Something that's opposite of Him, which is the low. Why do we say, now Now we're turning it all around, saying, no, 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 it's really, well, our souls, our souls are spiritual. It's not the low. Let's, let's get a little better, a little deeper into it. Here's the idea. Um, in order f- for something to facilitate, to be able to receive God's essence, we're talking about the deepest secrets that has ever been, I mean, it's not me revealing it, this is what it says in the books, but I just want you to realize, these are very, 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 very deep essential ideas. So again, when we say God wants to have a dwelling place, that means something that can be a vessel to receive Him. Nothing can receive him. Any vessel has, has boundaries. And therefore, and let's understand, receiving him means that can internalize him, can, that allow him to reveal himself in it. Nothing can receive the essence of God. The only one who can receive the essence of God is the essence of God. He's the only one who can be a container the only one who can be a container for his essence is his essence himself. And therefore, the only ones who can be a container for God himself, the only ones who can be a container for God himself is the Jewish soul, because the Jewish soul is of the essence of Hashem himself. Our souls are rooted in God's quintessence, higher than Hashem's light, higher than Hashem's projections. We are called in the in the Shir Hashirim, we are called Teumasi. We're called God's twin. Just like two twins originate at the same point, at the essence. They begin together. They're, they're, they're very germinated, they're source. They started from that same seminal drop. These two twins are just born together, so to speak, and they're both two halves, some some of whole, of one whole. God says about Israel, you're my twin. That's that's that, this is such crazy words. That means we in our essence stem not from any expressions and lights or spiritual worlds. We are at the very, very core stemming from the DNA, so to speak, of God's very being, our neshamas, our souls. We are His other half. And therefore the only ones who can host Him, facilitate Him, and be a vessel for Him are the neshamas because we are Him. However, if so, why? Hold on, this contradicts the whole idea that we spoke about all the weeks. All the, all the, the last 10 years, I'm from this podium. I'm screaming like to, to, from the, 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 and every week. And God wants a dwelling place in the low. And the low, the physical, the material. Now it's the whole thing different. No, 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 it's only Him. Here's the idea the environment in which we create this home for Him is the physical world. He will live inside of us when we 
In which context? Where will that residence take place? Where he will live inside our soul? In the context of the physical world. That's the space in where it will take place. But the physical world itself is not the, is not the container for him. The inner container is him. So let's understand something. I do want to interject for one moment. We discussed many times in this class the power of the physical. What makes the physical so special and so unique? And I had mentioned to you that only the physical creation versus the spiritual worlds stem from the essence of Hashem. Because we said an interesting idea that the, the, the craziness about physicality is that physicality is the only existence in the world that senses that it doesn't have a source. It doesn't feel like it's being generated by something. Physicality feels very much its own existence as absolute. You come to this class and you, or we study and read books and we hear that there is a creator who created us. That's, a, that, that's more, of, and that's coming from our soul. But physicality feels that its existence is without a source. Why does physicality feel its existence doesn't have a source? And the reason is because God projected his essence into physicality. The only other thing that doesn't have a source, the, the true be now, now you're able to put it this way. Physicality really does have a source. Who's the source of physicality? God is its source. But how can the physical have such a crazy feeling as if it doesn't have a source? How can physicality have such a distorted feeling? The answer is because God lends his very essence into the physical. Hear that? And God's essence doesn't have a source. God exists from within himself. All the spherot, all the attributes... Even the infinite blinding light of Hashem all has a source. What's the source? They all emanate from a previous level. Ultimately, everything goes back to where? To the essence of essence. And that's what we call in, Kab- in Hasidut. The words we use is atzmus. Atzmus means the essence of God. Atzmus is the only entity from the word. Atzmus comes from the word etzem. Etzem means the essence. And the essence is the only being that doesn't have a source because it, it is because it is. It just is. Hashem is. Doesn't have, no one created it. No one made it. It didn't come from anywhere. The only other entity that has that feeling is physicality. Physicality has a feeling that it doesn't come from anything else. And the reason is because when God creates the physical, He lends, so to speak, that feeling that He has into the physical. So physical becomes the biggest liar that there is to pretend that it exists without a source, but that lie is rooted in the deepest truth that no other form of existence has. It's the only entity that can feel the way God feels, but in the most distorted way. It's crazy. So that was an explanation why we explained many times why the physical is the most conducive to host the essence of Hashem. However, and here is a very, deep, a very distinction, the distinction we're making in tonight's class it doesn't mean, God forbid, is that the physical is the essence of God. The physical is not the essence of the God. The physical is a creation. It's that in order for physicality to exist, it could not exist without the essence of God imparting that feeling into it. So we might say like this, that the physical demonstrates the essence of God, but not that the physical is the essence. The physical is a creation. The only entity that is 
is the essence of Hashem, is mine and your soul. Because that emanates from Hashem's very quintessence. And that's why we're the only ones who can truly be a home for Him. If so, why do we need to do it in the physical? As I mentioned earlier, why can't we do it in the spiritual realms? So I'm going to give you a little bit of a metaphor, which I don't know if it's true. I haven't yet, I haven't yet really spoken to experts in Hasidus, and I'm scared to make up stuff, but to me it sounds right, and I hope I'm not, if I'm making a mistake, it's all the Ebersh Tamoichelzai. Okay, because I'm talking about very, abstract, very, very deep things. But we're really going to use the example of marriage. Because I think the real essence of God wanting to have a home is really the essence of God wanting to get married. And the truth is, the reason we really want to get married is because we really want a home. That's why the sages say that the woman is called the house, the home. Because when the desire to get married really is because you want a home. And here's really, when you wonder like, like, what, what do you need to get married for? What do you need that for? I don't know, it's a mitzvah, Torah says. But why is there such a deep drive in all human beings to get married? And or else, like, it's not like company. Some people have a lot of good friends and you hang out with. And you have... So what is, so what do you need to get married? So let's understand. It, it obviously emanates from something much deeper because God wants to get married. That's why we all have that need. But God doesn't even need to get married. So let's use but marriage as an interesting, somewhere to start with as a possibility. There's something very interesting that happens in the dating process and in the marriage. And almost every marriage, I think every marriage has to go through this process. For those who just got married, haven't been married 20, 30 years, this is a very important lesson. And even for those married 20, 30 years, I think what I'm saying now for sure will resonate. And here's the idea. It's a very, it's a very... Why is it when people date, you can date and date and date, and then you don't really know the person? And you get married, and you're like a, six months later, and you're wondering, hey, it's not the person I married. Like, what in the world's going on here? And even you know, people say, you know, I dated, I had three dates. Finished, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and I was a chassan. That's how we did it in the good old days. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You have to waste your time. You have to, there's a learned Torah, you have to do other things, right? You have to get married, huh? so get it done, right? <laughs> Today everybody's so, am I happy, am I not happy, do I love huh? We got married because you're supposed to get married, we got married, fine. How long does it take? Okay, can I live with you? Yeah. Wonderful. Then you figure out, love and all that you figure out once you get married. In any case, Tuesday, what am I saying? <laughs> Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, the, the idea is, but, 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 but you have people who date for four years. No, don't get married until you really know the other person. A hole in my head. You'll date them for six years, you won't know them the way you'll know them three months after you got married. And even people, it's funny, even people who live together before they get married outside, don't even know their spouse until they get married. Something very strange happens when you go under the chuppah. Oh, everything changes. And it's something very, I think, something very deep psychologically what's going on. You see, the real motivation... So let, the external idea of why that is, is because as long as you're dating, you're pretending. You're not being yourself. You're not being yourself. You're putting up your best self. Once you get married, then you drop that filter and you start being yourself. 
Now, why? Why is that? Why can't you continue? I mean, you're getting along so beautifully when you're pretending. So why do you have to suddenly let go and start showing your true craziness? And scare the other person out of their mind. Like, who did I marry? Why in the world, why in the world do you have to do that? Be happy. You'll continue pretending. The answer is, once I'm married, I don't want to pretend anymore. Because to pretend, why did I get married? Did I get married to continue? For that, I have 30 friends that I can pretend you, when I got mad, I don't want to pretend. I want to be me. So, so why were you pretending first? So I think the psychology behind it, again, is something like this. Could be. Maybe I'm wrong. But when I want to get married, means I want to be able to share myself with someone else. I want to be able to be myself, completely who I am, in my deepest inner place with someone else. And In other words, I want someone to accept me as I truly am. There's some kind of need in the human psyche. I want someone to accept me as I truly, truly am. The problem is, no one can accept you as you truly, truly, truly are besides yourself. Because only you are you, and you're the only one who can live with you. As you truly, truly, truly are. We know that a person can do the worst things in the world, but they still love themselves. It's the nature. On all, I mean, even though you know about yourself all kinds of horrible things sometimes. They say, this is like a bad flow. I wish no one finds out about this. This shouldn't matter. But yet you can live with yourself. Why don't you love yourself? Why? Because it's you. And you can accept yourself with all the flaws, with all the craziness. Getting married is you want to like open up that door and share that craziness with someone else. The problem is you can't do that with someone else. Because no one else can handle you as you are. You'll scare the person like crazy. They'll go running for their life. Say, a lunatic, a meshugana. A total nutcase. Everybody has got lunatic, crazy things in their essential core nature. Stop crazy things. Why? What does it bother you? What does it bother you? I don't know, but this is the way I am. Why do you get... I once heard from Rabbi Manus Friedman, just a nice idea, which is true. This is exactly the point that I'm saying. When you're getting married... Marrying, getting married means you're marrying someone's mishigasa. If you're not willing to marry their mishigasa, then you're not getting married. Meaning for the normal same thing, I don't have to marry you. That I have a thousand friends. I, I, why do I, I, for you, I want to be able to be crazy with you. Anyone. So telling your wife or your husband, especially your wife, okay, I'm talking from my end, that that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. So therefore what? That's why we're married. It doesn't have to make any sense. Now, but here's the thing. Since you can only... Only someone who truly is you can accept you for who you really are. So therefore, here's where Kabbalah tells us an amazing thing. When you get married, you are only marrying yourself. Your, your husband and wife are one soul. So you, when you're getting married, you are marrying yourself. The other person is you. And that's why they can handle you. Because they're you. Ooh, but watch this. But hold it. Me... <laughs> I, was, I was me before I got married I don't need you So now it gets a little confusing I want someone else to accept me As I am But I can't do that with anybody but with me Ah, so that's the big chachma of marriage What's the big chachma? What's the great thing over here? You marry someone who appears to be not you So externally they're not you They're someone else So you have the opportunity to be yourself With someone who's not you And then the only reason they can accept you because deep inside they really are you. 
So that's the insanity of marriage. It really doesn't make any sense. You want to be you with someone in someone else's life, but anybody that's not you couldn't handle you. So you marry someone who looks like they're not you, but they really are you, and then you can be yourself with that in person. That will explain that whole dating crazy thing. The reason why you pretend at the beginning in this, because in the beginning of a relationship, what's attracting you to the other person is precisely that they're not you. If you would see the other person as a reflection of you, and that they are you, you would run away. I don't need another me. You don't want that. You want the other person for them not being opposites attract. You want someone who's not you. So a man marries a woman. And then a woman is different than a man and spiritually, physically, and all different levels. They're so different. Someone who's not part of my family. Can I marry to my sister? No way. I want someone who's as far as possible as me possible. No, in order to attract someone who's not you, you want to put up a very good behavior. So you pretend. Both pretend because both of them are looking to attract someone. And then why, why would you want to marry a stranger? Someone who, so therefore, I have to make myself look good for you. Ooh, but the moment we go onto the chuppah, the moment we go on the chuppah, what happens now? Now I'm going to continue pretending? Why did I get married? To pretend? That's ridiculous. Now is when suddenly you remove all the masks and you say, here I am. It takes two, three months. I'm not saying necessarily the day after you get married. But after three months, four months, a year... Two years. Here is where you allow the other person to get to see you. Why? Because that's the whole satisfaction. You're testing. You want to see can they live with you with all your craziness. And ultimately, 20, 30 years in your marriage, you realize how much you are your husband and your husband is you. That's in a real deep. When you, just, when you merit that relationship to uncover how the two of you are not two separate beings, but you're one of the same. That, I think, all stems from all of our psychological experiences of getting married. It's all stemming from God's desire to get married. So he wants to marry. Who can he marry? He can marry only us. Because we're him. But first we have to look totally the opposite of him, because or else the whole thing doesn't work. He wants someone who's not him to accept. So he creates this piece of him to look totally the total opposite of him. Now, in order for us to be totally, 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 totally opposite of him, he puts us into these crunchy little bodies, which are so opposite of what God is. And here's the other thing. Here's another deep idea. In order for us to make for him a home, to be married to him, we have to first demonstrate that we are him. How do we demonstrate that we are of the essence of God? We demonstrate that in the low, when we live. That's the idea of dear Rebbe when we live in a low world, a world that is the most inconsistent, the most contradictory, the most opposite of anything godly and holy, and yet we the Jewish people manage to stay the course and to stay Jewish and to keep to the Torah and keep to the mitzvahs, which is, these are, this is God's godly things, despite the fact that we're living in a world that challenged this observance and this connection on every possible level and every possible way. And yet we Jews remain true to it. That's a sign that our Jewishness and our meaning our connection to God is not superficial. It's not superimposed. It's not even something that we chose some at some point in our existence through rational thinking, intellectual perception, understanding, whatever, we came to a desire and understanding that God is awesome and we want to be in a relationship to Him, but we had to prove something much deeper that we are Him. Now how do you prove that something, the essence of something, 
You see, all the things that we attach to ourselves that's not us, that's not who we really are, fall away when we're challenged. That's just the nature of a person. I, I know, you know, some of us sometimes take up, some, everybody, everybody at certain times decides that, you know what, my life is a mess, I can't live with this anymore, I'm going to start, like for me, I can't be on time or get my life together, I'm, I'm going to have a schedule, I'm going to wake up at this, I'm going to go over here. It all is very good. You know how long it lasts? Until some bump in the road comes. Once a bump and things get difficult, suddenly you fall, because everybody always falls back to their essential character when things get turbulent and difficult. You can pretend and pick up certain behavioral things that you're inspired about or do this. These things are wonderful as long as what? As long as you're not hit with obstacles. The more and the deeper the obstacles are, the stronger the obstacles are, you keep on dropping more and more and more and more of what's not your core nature. What remains of you after every obstacle, after every, every challenge, after you've scraped every external thing, what, what remains? The one thing that never changes is who you are at your core. That always remains. That's what we find, that a person at the... Who, your essential you, you'll be when you're three years old and when you're 115 years old. It's the same. The essence is the same. The appearance of your body, your, your ideas, your... All that can change. But the essence of who you are at your core, that doesn't change. So how does God reveal that we are worthy to be his wife? Because we are him. He puts us into a world where all these things that God is all about. You know what God is all about? Let me put it this way. God is all about Shabbos. We spoke about certain crazy things that people have that we don't necessarily understand, but this is who I am. You like it? You want to be married to me? This is me, right? So God in the Torah tells us who he is. He says, I am Shabbos, I am Tefillin, I am Kosher, I am... These are, now obviously in its source, it means very, very high spiritual things, but as it's translated into our definition of our world, it becomes the physical mitzvahs that we have. This is who I am, and this is who I'm not. That's really what all the positive mitzvahs and all the negative mitzvahs are. Fine. And we are his other half. That means we too are Shabbos, we too are Kashrus, we too are, are Matzah on Pesach, we are Shofar on Rosh Hashanah, we are Hanukkah candles on Sukkot, on, on Hanukkah I mean, and we are Sukkah on Sukkot, and we are not shrimp, and not uh, this, and not that. These are things that we are not. It's totally opposite of who we are. Fine. And God says, let's let you on a journey. He lets us on a journey, and take a look at an amazing thing. And you look in history, has there been anything, any, has there ever been, can you point to any kind of culture or, or uh, I don't know what to call it, a program that has been challenged more than the Torah, than observance of Torah? Nothing. A lot of things were challenged, but they were challenged and gone. Is there anything in the world that was challenged with circumstances that challenged it from every direction. If we look at Jewish history, see how much was Shabbos challenged? Jews were in every country, in every different place. When they came to America, it was one type of challenge to Shabbos. When they were in the Soviet Union, it was another kind of challenge to Shabbos. And there's a challenge to family purity, and there's a fat challenge to kosher, and there's a challenge, not just one challenge, a challenge on seven continents. 
through all different times of ages, middle ages, modern ages, this kind of challenge, that kind of challenge. You're going to be beaten, you're going to be burnt alive, you're going to be this, you're going to be spat on, you're going to be made fun of, you're going to be a Pesach, a Seder, you're going to have dead uh, uh, children, you accuse that you're using their blood, you're going to have this, you're going to have this, you're going to have that. And what happens three and a half thousand years later? Look across the world. What do you have? The same tefillin, the same Shabbos, the same mikvah, the same kosher. They do it so different. I was by a chasana last week. It was a Persian wedding. And I was, I was, the first time that, it was a, that I was at a chasana that was purely Persian, meaning it wasn't influenced by Hasidic groups or other things. It's pure. And I was so taken by the different customs that there were. The chuppah was so different than I'm used to. I, I had a, a, actually a, a girl, Mazel Tov, who's uh, been coming to the classes here. And I was very... So it, it, the, the chuppah looks so different. So many things done different. But the essence of the, the essential element of how a Jewish wedding at its core is the same. There's a ksuba. This is done different. That's not, but the core. So there is a lot of flavor and a lot of cultural different things coming from all directions. But the core, it's Shabbos, it's bris milah on the eighth day, it's kosher, it's this, it's that, it's Pesach, same holidays. It did not change after three and a half thousand years in every place in the world we the Jewish people have revealed that our DNA is the DNA of God and the DNA of God is our DNA our DNA is his DNA and this is all expressed through the Torah mitzvahs performed in the physical most challenging environment to it and yet it survived so here is where we prove that we are him and then he can live inside of us when Mashiach comes. In where? In this physical world. Now let's go back to the parish. We'll understand the depth of what's going on over here. True, see, in the book of Bereshis, we haven't yet encountered the purpose of creation. In the book of Bereshis, we encounter creation. It's a story of creation. We don't know why. We just know what creation happened. And then we have our forefathers... They discover God, they want a relationship with Him, God responds, it's beautiful. But the real core underlying reason, the kavana, the intention of creation, is not in revealed in the book of Bereshis. Rashi tells it to us, right at the first Rashi. Bereshis, the second Rashi. Bishvil HaTorah, for the sake of the Torah, Bishvil Yisrael, for the sake of the Jewish people that are, that are called Rashis, but it doesn't say so openly in the Chumash. We come to the book of Shemos, here the Jewish people are born as a people, and here the Torah is given. The underlying purpose of why all of creation came into existence, the why of it all is revealed. What's the why? So what is the beginning? And for that, you have the beginning of Shemos here. This is so great. You have the beginning of Shemos and you have the end of the Shemos. The beginning of Shemos, you have the ultimate final, the beginning of a project, you right away put your mark. What's your purpose? The whole inner, inner purpose of it all is right at the beginning. God tells us, Shemos B'nei Yisrael, these are the names of the children of Israel. Rashi says, because he loves them. Chibasam. Chibasam is such a deep word. Chibasam, he cherishes them. He loves them. He loves them because he loves them. Because he, it's his, he loves himself. He loves them. We are him. He is us. We're inseparable. So that is expressed in the beginning because the purpose of it all is his unification with the Jewish people. Getting married to us. What's the end of the book? The end means, how is this plan finally implemented in reality? Oh, that's done when we build a home for him. When we make a mishkan for Hashem in this world. When we were able to take the most challenging environment, 
which is the most opposite of serving God. And we're able to take this challenging environment of the physical world and turn it around to make God comfortable in the physical world, to create a home for Him. That's a demonstration of how godly we are. So that's the end of the book of Shemais. So that's the book of the redemption of the Jewish people. Based on, however, on what we just discussed, we understand one of the true, true, true power of the making of the home of God is in a certain sense limited in the Mishkan. Because in the Mishkan itself, this will answer the first question that I brought. Because in the Mishkan itself, God is challenged by the physical always. The fact that the physical became a home for him is awesome. But we look into history, know that the physical world has many, many levels. So being in the desert, making a home for God is one thing. The real, real truth of showing how godly we are is if we can make a Mishkan for God outside of the Mishkan. Where? When we traverse the great deserts of the world. When we travel Midbara Amim, the empty, desolate um, places in which the Jewish people have gone through, in a place that is utterly godless, all the countries of Europe, in Asia, in Africa, Australia, America, across the world. All these places are called the real, real desert. Those places provided challenge after challenge, difficulty after difficulty. It's one thing, that little tiny tabernacle. It's another thing. When the cloud of God leaves. What does that mean spiritually? You're going into a trek in a desert. And there isn't a divine revealed presence. You're left alone. You don't have inspiration. You don't have your teachers. You don't have the altahim. You don't have all that support system that you once had. Moshe Rabbeinu isn't here. This one isn't there. That one isn't there. And you're faced with a cold, harsh reality. A world that laughs, scoffs, is indifferent, apathetic to anything holy and godly. And that world, that very world... And Jews marched through that desert without the cloud. The Baha'u'llah is Anon. The Anon has left Me'ala Mishkan. And if throughout that desert, we the Jewish people carry the Mishkan. And in every place we go and in every place we come, it turns into a Mishkan. There is a shul in the city. There is a mikvah. The same mikvah that was in Moshe Rabbeinu's Midbar. The same mikvah is over here on Pico. Over here. The same mikvah. Unbelievable. The same Shabbos. The same Tvilin is put on in Paris. In, in, in across the world. In, in Thailand. In every culture and in every place. You'll see Jews keeping the mitzvahs doing the things. That's the ultimate testimony. That we, the Jewish people, are a home for God. That Hashem can live in. So listen to the, the Pasuk. When the cloud goes away from the Mishkan, Yisu B'nai Yisrael, the B'nai Yisrael travel to a much higher realization of their connection to the Ebishter. A much deeper realization. Now as we discover a much deeper core of God's essence, that is our essence, and then the next place we find and we settle and we build the Mishkan, we grab from that, we draw down from that deeper place and reveal that in the Mishkan. So one is the ultimate expression of the home for God when we make Him a home outside of the home, not in the home. When we make Him a home when we're outside of the home, and even there He can feel homey and comfy. So what is that a sign? How godly we are in every situation. and in every, in every. That's why the conclusion of the book of making a home for Hashem is about traveling a, des- a desolate 
desert full of snakes and scorpions. And yet in every place, we figure out how to make that home for Hashem all over again. So this is a powerful lesson. And even if there's no light in your life, and even if there isn't great illumination, but you should know so deeply that your mitzvahs are so powerful, so strong, no matter where you are. And that's the whole novelty, that even in this situation, you're still lighting Shabbos candles. You're still putting on tefillin. You're still keeping Shabbos. You're still keeping family purity. You're still, and you're trying the best. It's not so perfect. We all know it's not so perfect. But we're unbelievable. We are an awesome, awesome, awesome people because we are the other half of God. And that is really what the book of Shemos and the Sefer Shemos reveals as the essence of Parshas Pekude. And God made a very, very, very good choice. Yeah.